October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the History of the Seventh-day Adventist Church podcast, episode number four, Disappointment. We left off last week on March 21, 1843, when William Miller and many of the other Millerites were waiting for Jesus to come that day. As you might have guessed, we are still here. March 21st came and went without a whole lot of second coming kind of stuff. Only a portion of the Millerites had really believed in setting a specific date in the first place, and so the amount of disappointment perhaps wasn't as great as you might expect. A couple of weeks later, Himes wrote in Advent Herald, the new name for Signs of the Times, that it is not safe, therefore, for us to defer in our minds the event for an hour, but to live in constant expectation. Himes, you might remember, was never very eager for a date to be set anyway. Still, Miller pointed out in the aftermath that some of those who looked forward to that date had left. Miller himself had noted in February of that year that he had the attitude that, if Christ comes, great. If not, we'll keep preaching. It was probably the flexibility that saved the movement from complete disintegration early on. And while the spring disappointment didn't diminish the sense of urgency and mission much, it did create a more reflective atmosphere. Many went back to the Bible, looking for comfort in the story of Noah, among others. After all, hadn't Noah been forced to wait seven days in the ark before any rain came? Why didn't God just start all of that flooding the instant the door was sealed? Obviously, the Millerites concluded, because there was a short period of waiting after the expected event to test the faith of Noah and his family. And didn't Jesus say that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end? The story of Noah was the perfect framing story for people who were grasping for answers. It made sense of what they experienced, showing them that it was not strange for God to delay for the sake of testing people's faith. Jesus also had a story of ten virgins in Matthew 25, which foretold of a delay. Miller added all of that to Habakkuk 2.3, which states the vision, though it will tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. They'd come too far and preached this message for too many years now to turn back. Just hold on a little longer. It should be noted that this explanation mainly convinced the core believers. Joshua Himes, Josiah Litch, Apollos Hale, Sylvester Bliss, and others became convinced that the dating system was flawed, and they borrowed a dating scheme from the Karaite Jews, insisting that all of this led them to April 18, 1844, and not March 21st. Again, hopes were raised, though not nearly as highly as before, and the people waited. But April 18 came and went. Surprise! Again, the people were disillusioned and more left the movement, but the movement was far from dead. On the contrary, it seemed to be picking up steam. Miller and Himes preached their way to Cincinnati, Ohio, while other leaders went all across the eastern seaboard. They kicked up dust, and in this atmosphere of earnest searching for answers, the tragically named Samuel Sheffield Snow emerged. Aye, Skipper, we be boarding the SS Snow. He thought he had the answer, for he had focused his time in studying Jewish feast days and decided that Jesus would come on the Day of Atonement. For those not well-versed in Jewish religious festivals, the Day of Atonement was the day upon which everyone was meant to repent of their sins while the high priest entered the holiest part of the temple to make a final atonement for sin. 
It was the only day of the year that he was permitted into the room that housed the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments, for to enter it on any other day meant immediate death. It wasn't a day to kick back for some golf. It was a day of deep soul-searching, and Snow had come to the conclusion the previous winter that such a festival prefigured the return of Jesus. According to the Jewish calendar, the festival falls on the tenth day of the seventh month, and after some nifty calendar jujitsu, Snow came up with October 22, 1844. Now this is the date everyone thinks of when they think about William Miller's movement. This was it. The only problem is no one had been listening to Snow. He had tried to write letters to Millerite papers, but the ideas gained no acceptance in the higher echelons of the movement. It's hard to say why no one would listen to him, as any mother who names their son Samuel Sheffield Snow aims for memorable alliteration. Snow would have his moment in mid-August 1844, when it took a little horsemanship and a sister with no filter. One Millerite preacher, a certain Joseph Bates, happened to be preaching at a camp meeting in Exeter, New Hampshire, when Snow rode into camp and sat down at the edge of the tent. Bates was trying to buoy up the troops who had been convinced by Miller that they had a place in history, that the Bible had spoken of their movement at this time. Bates was simply trying to encourage everyone to keep plodding onward when Snow's sister stood up and interrupted Joseph Bates in the midst of his sermon. It is too late, she announced to Bates, to spend time upon these truths, with which we are familiar. Time is short, she said. The Lord has servants here who have meat in due season for his household. Let them speak. To his credit, Bates humbly stopped where he was and sat down, turning the pulpit over to Snow. Snow proceeded to revisit all the familiar Millerite portions of Scripture, arguing from Daniel 8.14 and Matthew 25 that Jesus kept all the feasts that he had meant to fulfill, such as Passover, foreshadowing his death. But some feasts were still meant for the future, such as the Day of Atonement. And that year, the Day of Atonement fell upon October 22nd, meaning that Jesus was coming in a matter of weeks. Bates would later write that Snow's message worked like leaven throughout the whole camp and excited everyone to go home singing that Jesus would be here soon. A preacher named George Storrs wrote that he was beyond doubt that Jesus would return on October 22nd and concluded his article by saying, I feel I am making the last appeal that I shall ever make through the press. My heart is full. Another preacher, James White, called the fervor that swept through Adventism as a result of Snow's sermon a power almost irresistible. The truth is that William Miller had even proffered the idea that Jesus might come in the autumn of 1844 rather than the spring, but few seemed to notice his views either. As I said, Snow had likewise been trying to get people to listen since the previous winter, but to no avail. In order to be heard, it seemed the people had to get March 21st out of their minds first. They had to be disappointed before they could be encouraged. George Storrs also began to teach that he didn't believe that human beings had immortal souls. This must have been a lonely belief to harbor, because every significant group of Christians believed that when you die, you either go to heaven or hell, a fact that remains largely unchanged today. This development is important because the mortality of man is one of the pillars of Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. 
but that's for another day. Suffice it to say that Storrs managed to convince the Millerite leader Charles Fitch to agree with him. But Miller, Himes, and Josiah Litch were never to put much stock into it and publicly distanced themselves. Fitch and Storrs were on that deserted island by themselves, for now. But Miller and Himes did come around to Storrs and Snow's view of October 22nd. Litch fought it at first, while the others more or less stepped back to watch for a while. It wasn't until September 30th that Himes wrote Miller to admit that nearly every lecturer has come into it and are preaching it with zeal and great success. It's another example of how the movement was more of a loose confederation than an autocratic church structure. William Miller was still the face and name of the movement, which is why it's so curious that Miller felt no need to constantly shape his fellow believers in his own image. It was the mid-level management, if you will, the Snows and Stores, who were driving the mood of the movement now, while the senior leaders looked on, unsure of where they were going. Himes's letter to Miller was tentative, acknowledging the great success of the other preachers who pushed for October 22nd, while asking Miller's opinion on the whole thing. Himes more or less said, Hey Miller, didn't you write an article proposing that Jesus might come back in the autumn like a year ago? Whatever happened to that idea? A few days later, on October 3rd, Sylvester Bliss wrote Miller to inform him that now he believed the Lord was in this October 22nd date thing. Bliss also appealed to Miller to offer some sort of an opinion on the issue. And while they waited, Himes took the next step and publicly acknowledged on October 6th that he supported the prevailing belief that Jesus would return in just a few weeks. Miller also made his decision that day, writing to Himes that he saw a beauty, a harmony, and an agreement with the scriptures for which I long prayed, but did not see until today. So Himes and Miller were on board, but Litch held out, perhaps alone among the senior leaders. Still, he appears to have come around on October 12th or so. Needless to say, time was short, and Himes turned his PR machine in high gear to really get the word out. There were a lot of fanatics who responded just as there were rational believers. This had always been a source of some consternation to Miller, who feared that unbalanced people might hijack his movement, if not in reality, then at least in the minds of the press. There's just something about millennial movements, Miller's was not the first, that attracts nutjobs. The definition of an extremist here was hard to make, though. Some believers refused to harvest their crops, and others closed down their shops, arguing that if the world only had a few days left, then they ought to devote themselves to more profitable things than trying to make money. What use was money, or food, if Jesus was coming soon? So is that faith or presumption? Is that reasonable and logical, or is that extreme? Others went further, giving away all their possessions, including their furniture and even their houses, Again, was this faith or extremism? I mean, what better way to show your absolute faith in something than by, well, betting the farm on it? Then again, it doesn't seem moderate, and we're afraid of behavior that's not moderate. Of course, the second coming isn't exactly a moderate thing either, so who's to say? Some behavior clearly crossed the line. One preacher in Philadelphia claimed to have a vision and as a result convinced 150 people that they needed to flee Philadelphia like Lot fled Sodom. The Millerite leaders tried to stop the stampede, but to no avail. 
It was stunts like these, as they do today, that made the paper. Mobs rose up to oppose the Millerite meetings, and the mayors of New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia took notice. Many folks started going to churches, which often had meetings all day and night, and one publication claimed that 150 to 200,000 people were awaiting Jesus' return on October 22nd. Miller, more pessimistically, put it at around 50,000. This is still a respectable number. Besides all that, a certain Whitney Cross guessed that there were probably a million more people brilliantly described as, quote, skeptically expectant. Yet at least one of that number wouldn't make it. Charles Fitch died on October 14th at the age of 39. He at least wasn't meant to be disappointed. He apparently died after baptizing some people in cold Lake Erie in late September and caught a fever afterwards. Fitch had baptized 12 people the last March in the Ohio Canal in the midst of a snowstorm, so it's safe to say he never listened to his mother about catching a cold. The believers who remained stayed up all night, singing and praying and studying on the eve of October 22nd. But the hours ticked away, then the minutes, then the sun rose and fell, along with the hopes of at least tens of thousands of people, if not more. A few days later, Josiah Litch wrote that, It is a cold and dark day here. The sheep are scattered, and the Lord has not come yet. A follower named Hiram Edson wrote, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. On the outside, there was relief. One newspaper in Cleveland, Ohio, wrote that the Millerites had been up singing like serenading tomcats, and that we hope they will wake up rational beings. Undoubtedly, there were scores of people who thought Miller and his followers were nuts from the get-go, but there is also that large group that Whitney Cross called skeptically expectant, or, as we might put it, hesitant believers. Many of these seemed to join in the pile-on of ridicule, including other Christians. The Boston Post reported that Himes had known that the whole Jesus-coming-back-soon thing was ridiculous and took advantage of people for his own gain. Himes was incensed. He wrote back and demanded anyone who felt he had been wronged to make his case, and, if it was true, Himes would pay him back fourfold. Bates reported that on his way to the grocery store on October 23rd, neighborhood kids followed him, taunting him by saying, I thought you were going up yesterday. Some Millerite churches were destroyed or vandalized by mobs, and there was even a flash mob in Troy that dressed all in white and blew a trumpet, crying out, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Windows were smashed and eggs were thrown. But there were other Christians and non-religious papers that were disturbed by all the troublemakers and called for calm and respect. One paper said that all sincere convictions should be treated respectfully. Miller's Advent movement was the sort of thing that polarizes society and shows you the character of people around you. There's no beating around the bush. Miller was wrong about the event that he had anticipated. He had been spiritually awakened way back at the Battle of Plattsburgh, and nearly his entire religious life was about preaching this one message, and it failed. Since he preached his first sermon in 1831, Miller had never stopped. 
Now he had plenty of time to think about what his life meant. But did he really fail? There's a difference, after all, between being wrong and failing. The result of his work is that there were thousands of people who similarly woke up and began taking reading the Bible more seriously. Is that a failure? Were people, were Christians, worse off because of Miller? It doesn't seem to be the case. He didn't lead people to commit mass suicide or to put their hopes in the stars aligning a certain way. He pointed them toward the second advent of Jesus, a theme that the Bible mentions thousands of times as the pinnacle of hope and Christian expectation. This isn't to minimize the fact that he led a lot of people toward deep disappointment and ridicule, but it's to balance out that reality by saying that he also gave a lot of people hope. Hiram Edson had only bought into the movement in 1843 and was bitterly disappointed like everyone else. But looking back, he confessed that these days had been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. A lot of people abandoned the cause after October 22nd, however. The movement didn't end there, but much of the leadership worked more on holding the group together than winning new converts. Those who stayed were stunned and dazed and looking for new answers. Many were poor, having quit their jobs or given away all their possessions. And Joshua V. Heim stepped in there, trying to organize the Adventists by city and urging them to take care of each other. Many of the leaders stayed on board, but some, like George Storrs, bitterly regretted the part that he had played. The animal that Miller had created was wounded. There was no denying it. It couldn't go on the way that it had. The best anyone could have probably expected would be that it would go limp away somewhere and die. Its spirit was broken, its followers left in exodus, and it became the laughingstock of neighbors and newspapers alike. It would go the way of every group that tried to predict the coming of Jesus before it. But not quite. The animal did die, there's no mistaking that, but out of the ashes something entirely new was rising. Like the death of Alexander, there would be some fighting and chaos and division in the aftermath, but the movement would go on by transforming. For the remaining members of Miller's convictions, there would be an October 23rd and 24th and 25th and a vision in the cornfield. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. 
And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.